Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership Matters. Welcome to another edition of Leadership Matters, a show that aims to support the leadership development of current and future public and nonprofit leaders. Each episode is designed to inform leaders and inspire solutions. I'm Tom Wall, and I'll serve as the moderator of our discussion today. I work with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities and for the Strategic Change Initiative. We work together to help organizations to strengthen and transform themselves to assure a more successful future. With me today as our guest panelist is my good friend, Andre Howard. Andre, would you please introduce yourself? Yes, Tom. Thank you. Andre Howard with the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities of our Operations Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I bring you greetings today. Outstanding. Today, Andre and I are proud to have with us as our special guest, a strong and recognized leader in our field, Nancy Bieberman, president and founder of Women's Housing and Economic Development Corporation, WEDCO, in New York City. In the fall of 2016, Nancy was honored by Aramark and the Alliance for Strong Families and Communities as the 2016 recipient of the Peter B. Goldberg Aramark Building Community Executive Leadership Award. Nancy has long been recognized as a national leader in strengthening neighborhoods and developing communities as a result of her efforts to revitalize neighborhoods in the Bronx. Nancy, it's great to have you with us today. Would you please introduce yourself to our listening audience? Hi, thanks so much um, for that introduction and welcome, Tom. Um, I am Nancy Bieberman, and uh, as you said, I'm the founder and president of WEDCO. We are located in New York City and specifically in the Bronx. It's great. Nancy, they say that every career has a beginning that is followed then by a journey. Could you please share your beginnings with us? Where did you start your career? And what were you trying to accomplish at the very beginning? I began my career as a legal aid lawyer. And I worked in New York City. And I, my, my objective and uh, that of my colleagues, too, was to help people, you know, low-income people exclusively with problems um, that are unfortunately too common even today. Evictions, um, uh, welfare, social security disability, immigration problems, consumer problems, matrimonial problems, you know, really all the issues that can confront any one of us um, at any time in our lives, but for people who don't have money to pay for a lawyer, that's what Legal Aid and Legal Services does, and that's what I did for 12 years. Wow. Well, what are the most important things that you've learned during your wonderful career that you really didn't know at all when it all began? I think the answer, you know, there, there are probably three answers to that question. The first was um, that what I thought I wanted to do changed over mm-hmm. time. So, you know, as I started, you know, kind of helping people with the most difficult problems, you know, truly crises, in-the-moment crises in their lives, in the lives of their families, 
Um, you know, while I think I, you know, I was able to help a lot of people and, you know, prevent worse things from happening than were already happening, um, I came to feel as though I wasn't really tackling the issues Mm-hmm. the lives of many people that actually led to individual crises. So, for example, in, you know, when there's an inadequate amount of affordable housing or housing isn't affordable enough, people get evicted. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I could have spent a career helping people, you know, to stay housed in their apartments, helping people fight evictions. But I, I came to realize after doing it for quite a few years that, you know, I had you know I had a thumb in the dike, and and nothing was really changing, at least that I was participating in, to to sort of really change the underlying problem, which is to say, mm-hmm. how do we build more affordable housing and and maintain affordability? And so I think that was really sort of like you know lesson number one, that you know it, uh, it's perhaps unrealistic to expect that throughout a career you'd be doing the same thing, but that. You know, when you stay close, uh, when one stays close to his or her own observations and feelings and, you know, is sort of honest about, you know, am I making the change that I want to see? And if I'm not, you know, what could I do? You know, I think that's really, you know, is a a sort of a significant um, point about, you know, where I decided to change course. Mm-hmm. Another important, uh, you know, fork in the road for me was becoming a mother. I have three children, and mm-hmm. you know, seeing my my own life, you know, through the very same lens of many of the clients, women especially, who I was working with, you know, allowed me to be vastly more empathetic um, and to understand the complexity of people's lives because my life was so much more complex. After mm-hmm. I had children, and uh, you know, then there was you know, kind of starting to work. You know, I didn't start my you know career in community development by creating an organization. I started by working with you know other organizations that were working in community development. So I, I sort of cut my teeth in developing and overseeing the construction of affordable housing, working for a different organization. And I came to realize during that process, and, you know, in a way, this is sort of like the point of it all from the perspective of what's WEDCO and why do we do what we do, I came to realize that housing alone really didn't address, you know, overarching problems in neighborhoods and that we had to look at neighborhoods in a very, very different way other than roofs over the heads of people. Sure, sure. Well, can you tell us about that first major development project that you undertook in the Bronx and describe the challenges that you faced and how you met those challenges? So the Bronx, um, when I started working here, was very different from the Bronx today. You know, it, you know to some people, um, some of your listeners, it probably still carries with it a stigma of, you know, or an image of a abandoned buildings and rubble-strewn lots. That was the Bronx that I first knew and met when I began working here nearly 30 years ago. And what, and you know, it was it was an unfortunate reality that had nothing to do with the people who lived here, but had everything to do with uh, you know complex issues that 
that that cities all over the country face when um, when there are uh, you know sort of demographic shifts for one reason or another, and these have happened in cities across the country, um, not only New York. So when while I was working in the Bronx, I noticed um, it was actually hard not to notice and a, a really um, what I thought was a beautiful but abandoned building. Uh, an immense abandoned building that had been a municipal hospital, but it was shuttered um, at the time of the disinvestment and the abandonment of the Bronx, and it stood empty for 50 years. Um, and you know, it was you know you couldn't know, you couldn't not see this building. It really towered over the rest of the neighborhood. This is low-rise neighborhood, buildings of five or six stories is as big as they are in the Bronx, and this building is 12 stories. And it, it, it was a, a beautiful, um, uh, uh, ornate structure, and I don't think anybody in the city, for all the years that it had been abandoned, had the heart to tear it down, because <laughs> it yeah. was really it was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. But every effort to do something with it, and there were many for some reason, you know, failed. And mm-hmm. I liked the building, and the other women that I was working with said, you know, now this is a building that we could use for many purposes. We could have housing there, and we could figure out how to tackle other issues that are, you know, that we are hearing from people in the neighborhood, um, you know, that would meet the needs of people who were living in the neighborhood, but were, you know, we didn't win the housing lottery. I mean, we can only house so many people, but we had, there was a lot of other space in this building. So sort of easier said than done, suffice it to say, there were many challenges. Um, turned out the building was riddled with asbestos, um, and, you know, there was an immense asbestos remediation project that we did not fully appreciate. The... Um, the beginnings of our work um, developing it, you know, were supported by uh, one governor of New York, and then at, at an election, a new governor came of a different political party, and the mm-hmm. new governor wasn't so crazy about the idea. So, you know, we thought we had our funding and our political support in hand, and then it vanished. And, you know, we worked with the neighborhood residents, we worked with our local elected officials, and a reporter from the New York Times, you know, heard about what we were trying to do and asked if he could come up and just walk the building with us. I mean, this building, when I say it was abandoned, that word almost, it doesn't do it justice. It was filled with rubble. Um, there had obviously been people, you know, squatting in the building over many years. It was, it was rat infested, um, and worse. And this reporter climbed with us up the stairwell of 12 stories and, you know, looked out at what he could see up the Bronx and wrote an editorial in the Times that appeared on Easter Sunday. And the title of the editorial was A Resurrection in the Bronx. And it was a beautiful editorial that called on the new governor and said, don't turn your back on this. This is something that should be supported. And that was truly a turning point. Oh, that's wonderful. 
through all of your efforts in that very first project, what did you learn about neighborhoods and communities that you've used then throughout the rest of your career? I think primarily, you know, what we learned was there's not an, you can't talk enough with, with residents. We set about a process that spanned two full years where we assembled a group of neighborhood women, people who, you know, we went to the local pastors, ministers in the neighborhood, local schools, to try to find out, you know, you know could we identify a group of women who would be interested in figuring out what, what would be the best use of this old hospital building. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we identified a large group of women, um, and we wound up having potluck dinners with these women once a month for two years uh, in English and Spanish. Mm -hmm. Um, Spanish is the predominant second, you know, indeed second language or first language here in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in those meetings, we covered a lot of territory, you know, from understanding, you know, personal lives and situations women who had children with disabilities, um, uh, were living as extended families, who were, you know, living in overcrowded situations, who didn't know what good child care options might be, even as they identified child care as a major need of the community. And with them, um, we started to realize, and they informed us, you know, what it was that they were doing individually, household by household, to make ends meet. I mean, this was mm-hmm. not necessarily a job. In fact, for the most part, what we found is that, that people were, in fact, operating their own small businesses. Sure. And primarily, these, the small businesses fell into two categories. One was preparing and selling food at home for church suppers, um, for private events, so Mm -hmm. cooking and selling, and the other was taking care of children in their own homes, taking care of their neighbor's children, taking care of relatives' children, so that the parents of these children could themselves go to work. And so we took, you know, really those two, um, you know, those two you know, call them careers, call them little mm-hmm. businesses, micro-enterprises. And we asked, and so what would you need? You know, how, what could we do in this building that would help you do better in your work? And so we found, for example, for the group that was um, preparing and selling food in their own homes, we found that they were unable to sell food um, in a supermarket or, you know, a local small market because they weren't cooking in a health department sure. licensed kitchen. And so we said, well, you know, now this is something that we can try to address. And in, indeed, that's one of the things that wound up and still exists in our, in our Urban Horizons building, our first development, a 4,000-square-foot licensed commercial kitchen. Isn't that wonderful? We've got to take just a short break here, Nance. We'll be right back. Stay with us. (music) 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you're looking for an in-depth, thought-provoking discussion about leadership, Tune in to Bernard E. Robinson's The Leadership Forum, making an impact through effective leadership. Each program provides an intelligent, conversational experience about leadership from Bernard, his guests, and you. If you're interested in improving the quality of leadership in your organization, listen live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Leadership Forum on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. We're back. I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Andre Howard and our special guest, Nancy Bieberman, president and founder of Wedco in New York City. Before the break, Nancy was sharing her beginnings in our field and some of her early lessons. Nancy, your work really has all been about strengthening neighborhoods and communities. What do you believe are the major elements of a strong neighborhood that everyone in our field should be working to develop? I think that uh, to answer that question, um, it's best to think, you know, to really think very personally. Um, And by that I mean, what do I look for? What am I looking for in in a a neighborhood where I want to raise my children? Um, What I'm looking for is a place where it's safe to walk, where there are parks, where there's not too much traffic, um, where the air is clean, uh, where the schools are good, where there are places for people to congregate, and and where community happens sort of naturally. Mm-hmm. So if that's what I want, you know, and, you know, on my top five, I have to assume that, you know, it, we are all alike. 
you know, irrespective of how fortunate we may be financially. You know, we are all very much alike. And so anywhere that I work, and including the Bronx where I've worked for the past 30 years, the same assumptions that I have about the elements of a strong neighborhood and a community, the things that I believe, I assume, and, and I test these assumptions obviously all the time, that every human wants these same things, safety, mm-hmm. security, clean air, parks, recreation, you know, you know, nice homes to live in, good schools, um, and places for people to congregate. And, you know, over and over and over again, no matter how many times we ask these questions, and we do, I would say we spend a large uh, amount of organizational time listening to residents in the neighborhoods where we work, uh, Mm -hmm. doing, you know, comprehensive uh, needs assessments, you know, whether we do them by ourselves through um, analysis of demographic data and other literature or do actual community surveys or, you know, we continually look at, you know, the... um, you know, the impact of programs that we're creating and operating just to test our assumptions. All right, we believe that, you know, by providing, you know, safe housing and making sure the streets were, you know, free of garbage and that, you know, there were sufficient good early childhood education, that we would be making an improvement in the lives of of families. And so we have some good data over many years. Um... I, that evaluate each and every one of our programs to look at things like housing stability. You know, what's the turnover in the building, in our first building, you know, mm-hmm. after 20 years? It's minuscule. I mean, it is really minuscule when you consider the life events that cause any of us to move. A new mm-hmm. job, uh, you know, a family life event that causes somebody to go back and take care of an ill relative or whatever. The housing stability in this building is over 85% oh my in a 20-year period. So, you know, this is pretty unusual. And sure you know, we have similar data that just evaluates each and every component of what we do. And honestly, we care. I mean, we really care. We don't do, you know, we don't run daycare and Head Start programs, um, you know, just because we get the funding to do it. We really want to make sure that we are you know, um, employing best practices in early childhood education, making sure kids have healthy meals, making sure that parents are engaged, that we, you know, bring in fathers um, to the greatest degree possible, um, and that we celebrate uh, the enormous, incredible, and wonderful diversity that we're blessed with in the Bronx. Well, you've said that you see your organization as being responsible to help create livable neighborhoods with safety and health, commercial revitalization, and affordable housing. How do you actually go about achieving those goals within your development projects? Well, the, you know, the one thing you can say about a building is that it is tangible. You can see it. Um, either you're rehabilitating an existing building, like our first development, or you're building a new development. Our second development that was uh, completed in 2008 um, has 121 apartments, and this is a green building. 
Um, it's built with non-toxic building materials, and it's built to Energy Star standards, which means that um, they're they're very limited, um, you know, to the extent that the building trades have um, have reached um, in building techniques. Very limited CO2 emissions and energy costs that are much lower than your typical um, apartment building, and so. You know, the technology is there, the know-how is there, um, the expertise in developing affordable housing is something that we have in-house, um, I, I do, and others on our staff, but we do know, and I think this is what, you know, kind of sets us a little bit apart, as I said earlier, we know that building housing really isn't enough, so we look at each of our buildings as anchors, as neighborhood anchors, and ask ourselves and the residents in the, in the neighborhoods in which we work, what does this neighborhood need? How can this building serve the needs of residents? So in our second building, in addition to building it green, we created a green roof, which has been a, operated as a farm for nine years now, wow. and where tenants come. Um, you know, on a regular basis during the growing season to plant, um, to harvest. And in some cases over the years, you know, we've brought in professional chefs to, to really give people the, you know, the literal farm-to-table experience. For so many of the kids in our neighborhood that never seen a fresh tomato, you know, understood sure. that it grows on a vine. Um, mm-hmm. You know, simply you know, that's not often the experience that city kids have. Um, and so for many of them, this is really a revelation and a lot of fun, and they were into it. Um, and, you know, again, when you've, got a, you know, when you've got your own little farm on the roof of your building, the way you feel about your home, you know, really extends beyond the, the walls of your apartment. You know, sure. it extends to the roof. It extends to the streetscape around um, we have residents are involved in, you know, cleanup of, of garbage on the streets. We planted, uh, you know, probably 50 trees around the, the corner um, well, of, of this building. Um, and we And we created retail space. Um, in, one, in one of the spaces, we have a, a lab that's a small performance venue and you know, local artists, musicians come and uh, do performances, and it's been in operation for five years, and we regularly get 85 to 100 people to an event. Again, wow. the events are, you know, music from the Bronx. It's an incredibly diverse uh, borough, so you can have uh, Mexican music, uh, Garifuna music, music from uh, West African countries, along with Puerto Rican and Cuban and Irish um, and many others, you know, music that was born in the borough. So it's really like a, a neighborhood pride, uh, a celebration of neighborhood pride that happens in our buildings and an opportunity for creative expression. You know, when you do a green building, you know, and again, in New York, and I I think this is true in other urban areas, but I can speak definitively about New York, this city has, you know, 80% of New York City's carbon emissions come from buildings, 
not mm-hmm. from vehicles. And people don't really appreciate the extent to which, you know, the built environment, you know, really creates environmental issues. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. focused on cars and on, you know, cutting down, uh, you know, the uh, carbon emissions from vehicles. In cities like New York, it's buildings. And so anything sure. we can do that reduces the emissions of a building by building to at least energy star standards is a real contribution to the air everybody breathes in the neighborhood. So I think that's, you know, yet another factor in, um, you know, how do you go about building a, a livable neighborhood, a healthy neighborhood. Fabulous. Nance, we have to take another break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. We're back. I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Andre Howard and our special guest, Nancy Bieberman, president and founder of WEDCO in New York City. 
In the last segment, Nancy was sharing her ideas on building neighborhoods and communities. In this third segment, we like to turn to Andre Howard to ask questions of our guests in the area of change leadership. Andre, good to have you with us. Take it away. Thank you so much, Tom. Nancy, just uh, great insight and reflections and really appreciate you joining us today. I've got one follow-up question uh, in terms of what Tom was talking about. And, you know, I do hear from time to time um, uh, leaders in the social sector talk about the, the utility of serving community in terms of is there ever a time that um, it comes down to not investing in community or certain neighborhoods? I guess I'd like to hear your perspective in terms of thinking about that prospect. Do, do you think from your experience and background and what you've engaged in, are there, are there communities and neighborhoods in our nation that perhaps, you know, co-creating community is just not a workable solution and, and and maybe there needs to be some disconnect from certain communities and neighborhoods in our nation. I mean, I'd love to just hear your insights about some of that uh, kind of uh, talk and, and line of thinking. You know, I, it's hard for me to imagine um, there being a community that, you know, didn't warrant, you know, mm-hmm. uh, attention and investment. I think the only thing that would you know, make me think twice about that is if there was, um, you know, if for a variety of reasons, you know, people moved away and were continuing to move away, you know, if perhaps they're, you know, an, a major employer anchor um, or, uh, you know, a major uh, manufacturing hub ceased to exist. And you know, I read an article in the paper just a couple of days ago about um, you know the you know the family-run small business. You know everybody mourns the closing of small mom-and-pop businesses. You know all over our country, small towns, big cities. And the article focused on a tiny town in Colorado, and this was really like the last mom-and-pop business in town, but nobody wanted to take it on. And so what do you do, you know, if, if people, if, the, if folks who are actually living in areas make choices, you know, there's no more opportunity here. I have to go somewhere else. I'm going to live with a family member somewhere else. You know, that I think is a moment where perhaps you stop and say, you know, there are certain forces that are out of the, out, out, uh, outside the control of the human services sector. And, you know, the best we can do maybe is sort of mitigate harm that happens to people. But that's honestly the only circumstance under which I think, uh, you know, deciding not to invest in some way is, is warranted. Sure, sure. That makes some sense. Good. So let's turn the attention to leadership development. Um, <clears throat> obviously, you've had a lot of a great experience in developing um, the pipeline of talent. And I know that continues to be a, uh, a challenge for our sector in terms of getting the right people in the right places uh, on the bus. Um, could you share with us some of your own um, insights, reflections, uh, perhaps tactics, techniques, tools that you use to, to really build the talent pipeline in your organization so there's a robustness in terms of of, of keeping a vibrant and sustainable org alive through the human capital uh, equation. Well, I think that uh, that the best answer to that is actually what you just said. 
um, our, pre, our staff members, our, our human capital, we are nothing without the people who, who join in the mission and who, you know, come to decide that this is where they want to devote their, their lives and careers. The very first thing we did at WEDCO when we were like three people, we decided to write a person, you know, uh, an employee handbook. And it seemed sort of ridiculous at the time, you know, we were only three people, you know, who knew whether we were going to last a year, much less 25 years. But we thought it was an important exercise, and it's an exercise that this organization has revisited every few years since. But these were all questions that had to do with, you know, who are we as people outside of the work that we do? What do we need? you know, to support ourselves as workers. Um, and we found, you know, and this is not, should not be a big revelation to anybody listening, that our employees needed flexibility, you know, to deal with work and family and other life issues. They needed time off that they could count on. They needed health insurance. Um, this, you know, these are kind of like the fundamental underpinnings of, of our lives as, as adults. You know, okay. we all need to know that it's okay to deal with a sick child if that's a necessity. Um, we made an early decision, for example, that we were going to be explicit and say, you know, you were giving you X number of days of sick leave. You need to take them for your child as opposed to yourself, that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I think setting that as a foundation, you know, really creating, um, you know, principles that have to do with how we treat the people who work here, that that's really the way, you know, that is absolutely foundational work that, you know, only grows over time. You never, you never go back on these things because people come to rely on them and more people want to work with mm-hmm. you, because they know that you treat your employee, you know, that we treat our employees as well as we can, and our benefits have gotten better over the years. Um, we offer family health insurance. You know, we offer as much as we can, and we make sure that our staff members pay as little as possible. And that's the message that we continue to send. So that's one thing, you know, just treating people right um, as we would want to be treated ourselves any place. And then after that is participation, making sure that people's voices are heard, that there are meetings, department meetings, organizational meetings, parties. We're really good at parties, to tell you. We, you know, we have a, a Christmas party. We have a summer staff retreat that's always somewhere fun and outdoors. We have staff meetings. We have managers' meetings. We have meetings of directors that are more like, you know, how do, how do people work across departments? How does somebody working in the commercial kitchen uh, relate to the Head Start Center. So we always try to figure out ways to knit, you know, what could otherwise be siloed work together. Um, so I would say that's really, you know, the real bedrock. You yeah. know, what are the values that you have and how do you value the people who work here? Yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense, too. So wonderful. 
Um, I think the other piece, you know, I think we should pay some attention to, of course, we've been talking about this whole thing called equity. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the issue around gender inequities. And obviously, you being a woman over the years uh, uh, within the organization that I'm sure uh, has grown and, and had all kinds of challenges, how has your role as a, a female leader uh, either helped or hindered um, in developing the organization WETCO and, uh, and engaging other key stakeholders in the community? I mean, has it been a problem? Has it been a challenge? How have you worked uh, with the gender issue, I guess, uh, in terms of your role of being a very powerful executive um, uh, over the years? How have you kind of mitigated some of those challenges, I guess? I'm trying to think about the best answer to that question. You know, it, it, it continues to be a challenge, but I have to say it's obviously less of a challenge the older you get, you know, okay. as you become more comfortable in your own skin. Um, it was definitely true as I started out on my career. When I was in law school, 11% of my law school class was, was women. Today it's 50%, more than 50%. So things have actually objectively changed, you know, for for many women, yeah. you know, throughout the country in professional, in, in education, in uh, professional education. So I, I, don't, I don't think I could honestly say that, um, you know, I have felt that, that, you know, I certainly don't feel now that there's sort of an inequity issue. I am certain, however, that I am, that I have always been and continue to be paid less than my male counterparts. And I don't know what to say about that other than, you know, these are the facts. Yeah, yeah. We've got to work on that some kind of way, I guess. I don't know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of organization being reflective of community, I know that's been another a big challenge for uh, organizations, and it kind of goes along with some of our discussion already. Uh, the importance of having... Uh, reflection within the organizational hierarchy that certainly can connect with community and and sometimes resemble community uh, in terms of uh, of race, ethnicity, gender, other characteristics. How important do you think that is for organizations to engage in as we think about our sector? I think it's of paramount importance. Um, I I don't think it's okay um, for for organizations that are not reflective of the communities they serve. I think it's hard to maintain credibility if you're not. So pretty much at all times, you know, I would say that our, at this moment, 70% of our staff lives in the Bronx. Um, you know, we've grown from three staff members in 1992 to um, 388 today. Wow. So, you know, but, but you know, it, it's... The fact that, that, that this high number, this high percentage of people, you know, live in this very borough where they're working, mm-hmm. non-New Yorkers, a borough is just a section of a city, um, yeah. which is what it is in the Bronx. But the, you know, the executive leadership of the organization is also critical. I'm a woman. The organization's executive vice president, who has been here for 20 years um, and been on the executive team. Uh, for 10 years, it's African-American men. And our our senior staff, you know, the woman who's director of our social work program, a Latina, the woman who's director of our Head Start Center, a Latina, um, 
the woman who directs our uh, child care training initiative, the largest, by far the largest part of this organization's work is training women who are becoming child caregivers um, themselves. She's a Latina. So we actually, you know, we, we believe um, uh, that diversity is, um, is, a good, is, a, is a really positive value uh, in general, but in specific, you know, which is to say this organization and this neighborhood, it's essential, and I think we've recognized that at the very beginning, and we've maintained it throughout these years. Beautiful. We have to take a short break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network leadership matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. need to improve leadership staff or organization performance contact InnoVisions today for quality effective and affordable leadership staff and organization development training coaching and consulting services Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. How is your company's marketing plan? Could it use a little help? For most businesses, the answer is yes. Tune in each week to Marketing That Won't Break the Bank. Host Janet Kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level. Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. We're back. I'm Tom Wall, and with me is Andre Howard and our special guest, Nancy Bieberman, president and founder of Wedco in New York City. In the last segment, Andre was asking... Nancy to talk about some of her thoughts on leadership. In the final segment, 
We usually turn to our special guests and ask them to offer some advice to their fellow practitioners in the field. Nancy, with that as the backdrop, what are a few things that you've learned during the course of your career that it would be very wise for all leaders in our field to consider? I would say that, um, you know, the, the first issue that, that comes to mind has to do with nonprofit governance and the roles, the different roles that, um, that boards have and that staff has. I think that, you know, one of the challenges that we had as a startup organization, remember we started with a budget of a $75,000 challenge grant, and, you know, now we're a, you know, a $21 million organization with, you know, maybe $320 million in real estate assets. So we've grown rapidly over 25 years, but... You know, the adolescence of the organization, and I really feel that way about it. I think adolescence is the only way that sort of captures the turbulence mm-hmm. of getting from a startup to getting to maturity. An issue in, uh, in this organization's adolescence had to do with board-staff relationships. We were trying to grow a board, um, you know, trying to uh, entice interest people in joining the board. And, you know, again, we weren't an established organization. We didn't have any name recognition whatsoever. And so, you know, where's the Bronx? What does women's housing and economic development mean? Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Um, and, you know, we you know, obviously wanted, you know, people of stature. Um, we wanted people who were would be reflective of the community we serve. And we were also looking for people, as every nonprofit leader um, I know uh, agrees is important, we were looking at people who had the ability to financially support the organization and to uh, introduce us, you know, to others with means. Um, So I would say that at a certain point in the organization's adolescence, we, you know, we brought on, you know, four board members at the same time with a board, ma- you know, by a, a board matching service. And it was a very small board, you know, at the time we were talking about, you know, there were like 12 board members. And suffice it to say, we got matched with a group of four people that had a profoundly negative influence on the organization. You know, they... You know, they came to us and were matched with us because they had resources and connections. And, you know, we all thought they could help us in that way. When they arrived at the board, and again, this was all at one time, so I would ask my colleagues to consider that as you add board members, especially if you're a small organization, one at a time. Four people at one time, you know, they can either be the right people or not the right people. They have a big impact. So we wound up in a situation where they were not the right people and had a big negative impact. Not the right people in specific. You know, we thought that these were people who, you know, had, you know, had jobs and were professionals and really had networks of financial and other kinds of support. And it turned out that all of them were people who had recently left employment Mm -hmm. and were looking for something to do. 
Yeah. And we got a, a group of four people who actually wanted to come in and run the organization, which is not, you know, what in nonprofit board, um, you know, nonprofit governance, this is not really what board members are supposed to do. They right. govern, they oversee, you know, strategically at a high level. They have fiduciary responsibilities, but they don't, they're not supposed to be involved in day-to-day management. And with this particular group, those boundaries were crossed and blurred time and time again. And ultimately, we had a little mini board crisis. Some of them left. We brought on a whole other group of people. And, uh, you know, we've obviously lived uh, to see another day. But it was as, as I look back on the entirety of this organization's growth, its impact, its good sides and bad sides, ups and downs. I look at that period of time and, and say that was a lesson that I wouldn't want to visit on anybody else in the field. You know, really pay, pay attention to who comes onto your board, why they're coming onto your board, um, what they really want to do, and, you know, bring on board members one at a time. And make sure, and this is one lesson we learned, uh, honestly, I didn't think the board matching thing really worked for us. And since that time, all new board members have been recommended by an existing board member, you know, somebody who really understands the organization and its culture. Nancy, we have about one minute left, but I'd like you to share with us a mistake that you made at some point in your career that helped you to learn something very important that you probably wouldn't have learned if you hadn't made that mistake? You know, I'm thinking of one, and really, I can just, there, there have been lots of mistakes I've made. And, you know, honestly, I don't think there's one that jumps out at me at being any bigger, but I do think that, you know, that, that mistakes, whether they're mistakes in how quickly you grow an organization, mistakes as a lawyer, uh, you know, and how you evaluate, you know, the facts that are being presented to you um, by a client, you know, mistakes in judgment that, that we all make. I mean, I feel like I've made it, there, there are lists of mistakes, and, and no one really stands out other than, you know, I think mistakes are all learning experiences, um, taking on more than you can. You know, having ambitions, you know, bigger than your britches, so to speak. I mean, I think everybody is guilty of this at all times, and even if we do things for the right reasons, you know, I want to do more to help more people, that sometimes you can bite off more than you can chew. And so I think those are sort of like the real granular day-to-day mistakes that I've made and that I think we all do. And, you know, it's important to just be conscious of, of choices. I would say. Thanks. Well, that, that's all we have time for today, and I want to offer thanks to Andre Howard for joining us, and especially to our special guest, Nancy Bieberman. Nance, so good to have you with us. And to our audience, please tune in again next time when we'll offer another edition of Leadership Matters. Thank you again for tuning in. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar is broadcast live every Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a wonderful week. 
and make your leadership matter. 